Welcome to Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Mark Carrigan about his new book, Social Media for Academics, which is published by Sage in 2016. Welcome to Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Mark Carrigan, who's the author of a new book called Social Media for Academics. So welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, th- this is a, a sort of fascinating book because it's, it's both a uh, a mediation on what it means to be an academic in the digital age, as well as quite a useful kind of how-to guide as well. It, it brings together um, two two themes really well, I think. And I'm quite interested to know a bit about um, where the project came from. Was it something that had come from work you were doing, um, or was it a kind of completely, you know, kind of random and an unusual idea that led to the book? Well, first of all, I really like your description of it because I was worried it's a slightly strange book because it sits between two quite different, more usual forms. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice to hear it described like that because that is very much what I was going for. And it's an idea that I've had for quite a long time, really. Um, it's odd, isn't it, that the enthusiastic use of social media can give rise to the idea of a book about it as a you know completely non-digital form. But it, it just struck me as something that needed doing. You know, there should be a book like this out there. And uh, the idea went through a few iterations. Uh, initially, I thought of it as a more political book, one about the politics of academic labour and how they're being changed in the digital university. And I think this would have been a much more niche book. And over time, the idea became something more like halfway between a handbook and a reflection on digital scholarship. I think that's that's a really useful um, starting off point, actually, for understanding the book, because that term, digital scholarship, is something that you engage with and try and explain, um, as well as making, you know, a lot of kind of practical points about how academics might get involved. Um, and as we'll come on to talk about later, about, you know, some of the kind of practicalities and risks. So I wonder if you could sort of unpack that term, digital scholarship? Well, on the surface, it's quite a simple term. So scholarship is what scholars do, and digital scholarship is what scholars do using digital tools and in a digitalised environment. But I think when you look beneath the surface, both those concepts become much more complicated than they initially seem. So what we mean by digitalization and the digital, and what we mean by scholarship. Uh, my preferred take on it comes from the educational technologist Martin Weller, who advocates its use as a shorthand. So we know what we mean by digital scholarship, and it's a way of marking out a space of activity, a space of practice that we shouldn't try and fix in advance. So I do quite like this straightforward way of just using it as a a placeholder to ask in the most general terms about how digital technology is changing the nature of scholarship, what academics do. And, I, you know, I did choose deliberately in the book to look at an academic rather than a scholar. So an academic is an occupational role within a particular kind of organisation. And there are particular professional anxieties, particular professional imperatives that follow from that. And I think that anchors my focus in the book in a particularly practical orientation that might not otherwise have been the case. But I do think the transformation of communication for academics is something intimately connected to scholarship more broadly because obviously there can be scholars outside the academy and that's one of the most exciting and interesting aspects of digitalization and intellectual work 
but yeah, you, you also, and again, sort of later in the book, flag up how um, <clears throat> there is this institutional concern as well as um, the individual scholar's activity. The, the other, the other, I guess, starting point for the book is in the title, you know, this term social media. Um, and one of the things I quite liked in the first chapter is um, you've got a heading where you, you know, offer a definition of social media by asking what are social media and why is it so dangerous to try and write a book about them? So I wonder if you could kind of answer that question for the listeners. Uh, well, with my social hat on, I think social media is a general term to refer to a particular kind of technological platform that has become predominant in the digital environment we're now in. And at most, there's a family resemblance between them. So, you know, again, I think we know what we mean when we talk about social media. But when you look at a particular kinds of social media platform, it's actually quite difficult to pin down what they share and in what sense they're the same thing. You know, and part of the trouble with this term is that if social media are media that are social, what media is there that isn't social? And media is by definition social. And so, you know, this is something that was once talked about as Web 2.0, which was a term of media hype. You know, there was a lot of vested interest expressed within it. But it's quite interesting how Web 2.0 became social media. And maybe we're seeing a, a transformation in how people talk about this now. So it's becoming more a matter of platforms, platforms that are embedded in our everyday lives. And the book is an attempt to understand the practical consequences of this embedding in our everyday lives for one particular occupational group and to offer some thoughts and advice about how they can respond to this change. The, the other thing with, with that kind of uh, definitional moment <laughs> I guess is the um, is the kind of key characteristic. So you talk about social media having persistence, visibility, spreadability, and searchability. I wonder if you could give me um, a little sense of, of what those four characteristics mean. So these are terms from the social media scholar Dana Boyd, and I really like them because they're such a neat way of theorising the characteristics of digital communications. And so, so she talks about them as the affordances of uh, social media. So the kinds of activity that are facilitated by it and the characteristics of that activity. And so persistence, I think, is one of the most interesting, which is the fact that communication through social media will tend, and these are only statements about tendencies, but will tend to persist in a way which communication through other media doesn't. You know, in other words, are the things we post online will tend to stay there unless we take action to the contrary. They'll also tend to be visible. And, you know, again, this is a tendency, but there's an assumption of visibility built into most platforms, and particularly for scholarly communication, which has tended to take place within restricted lockdown ecosystems. This is something quite radical, both in positive and negative ways, and I think has to be recognised. Uh, spreadability is a slightly strange term, but that refers to the fact that these platforms are orientated towards communications spreading easily through diverse networks. And searchability refers to the fact that they're indexable by default. It's easy to search through communication through social media in a way that has not tended to be the case with other media. And I think the conjunction of these four characteristics it involves a radical change. And so I think with any kind of new technology, there's a risk that we overstate these changes that we become preoccupied by stories about what is dazzling and shiny and new. But when we look in terms of particular claims about the characteristics of these media, I think there are grounds to say this is something radically new. 
and that has really important consequences for how academics do their work because we can't ignore this environment. You know, we have to become familiar with its characteristics and systematically think through what this means for the kinds of activities we engage in and how we should orientate ourselves to them. To, to continue that theme of, again, wanting to strike the balance between being kind of over-celebratory but also recognising that um, new academic practices are emerging through social media, I, I'm interested in, in Chapter 2's um, exploration of the possibilities and risks of new form of publishing so you mentioned things like tweets blog posts podcasts you know these kinds of social media um practices but one of the things you also think through um in that chapter is you know potentially the kind of the pitfalls the risks uh, or some of the the problems um using that phrase you know the internet never forgets so i wonder if you could talk through um yeah those the, the balance of uh, these new modes of, of uh, publicising and publishing? I think to a certain extent, though, concerning the anxieties they can give rise to, and I think there are real practical problems, but I think there are cultural problems about how we conceive of academic publishing. And I think there's, a, there's something of a risk-averse culture in academia, um, and I think this is not amenable to thriving online. But nonetheless, there are very real risks. Uh, and so the key thing about the persistence is the fact that we can be held to account for things we've written by audiences that we cannot yet predict. And this might seem very abstract, but when you look at it, particularly in terms of very polarised political environments, so in the United States, there's lots of examples where professors and academics being having identities as activists trying to intervene in the public sphere, there are a, an increasing number of cases in which they've been attacked for these views or these views have actually been something that have been searched out um, by politically motivated groups in order to, dis to discredit activist academics uh, in ways that I, I'm worried will put more people off. And I think we have to have a really serious conversation about the nature of engaged scholarship under these conditions. Um, because I think the, 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 these are real risks. But I think there's an additional risk that we will retreat from the public sphere for these reasons, that the possible uses of this technology to engage, to set ideas to work in the world and to try and help them make a difference, that that might be lost because we are understandably concerned about the possibilities that would be attacked for these viewpoints in a way which probably wouldn't be the case if they're, say, in a behind a paywall in a journal. Part of this is uh, is powered by um, one of the things that's the subject of, of the third chapter, which is Twitter as a specific um, type of social media. And that chapter is devoted to thinking about academic networks and networking. So I wonder if you could talk through the example of Twitter and its, its use and, and the possibilities offered in terms of academic networks. Well, first of all, I really hate the term networking. You know, I find myself cringing to have written the chapter of a book with networking in the title. And, you know, I've just said networking three times in this exchange. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know what term to use instead because I tend to think networking is talking to people who share your interests about things you're interested in. And I, this is something that Twitter has always seemed very conducive to, at least in my experience. And, you know, in that light, I think networking comes to seem something actually very enjoyable and, you know, fun even. 
as opposed to the kind of image of uh, you know people proffering their hands you know with rictus grins stuck on their faces and looking over your shoulder to see who else they can talk to you know so i think there's a kind of organic culture of networking on twitter because it's a it's a platform that rewards sharing your interests and you know it's very conducive to um, serendipitous interactions if you share your interests on twitter you'll rapidly find an audience consolidating around you who also share those interests and vice versa. You know, you are in turn becoming part of the audience in virtue of seeking out people who you find interesting. And because of this, it's really good for making, you know, fruitful, interesting connections. It may be a trivial interest. It may be a number of interests. You may find people who you become really good friends with. There's a whole range of uh, connections that can form through it. Yeah, I think following on Twitter is an interesting social action. I tend to think of it as almost the the most minimal unit of social interaction possible. To follow someone in Twitter signifies at base that there's something engaging or interesting that you see in what they're doing, and you might one day want to extend that connection. And what becomes really interesting is when you see this uh, dynamic leaving the online and going into the offline sphere. And I should say, it's really hard to write about this kind of book about social media without using terms like online and offline, as if these were two distinct spheres. Because one of the most obvious reputations of this is if you go to a conference where lots of people are using Twitter. And in that kind of experience, it's, it's hard to see what is online, what is offline. Either they've become the same thing, or maybe they never were different things. And, you know, it can feel like there's no such thing as offline anymore. And that's maybe not a very appealing way of putting it, but particularly big conferences can become intensely social, welcoming spaces in a way which I had never previously found them. And I know that's true of many others. And smaller conferences can become intensely <clears throat> social in a comparable way. Because, you know, you have this uh, way of connections to people that Twitter brings into a new face-to-face -face meeting. And then it can be consolidated through that meeting. And then it becomes part of your network as you move on elsewhere. And so, you know, people who you might see once a year at an annual conference, you find yourself absorbing details of their life, talking to them, sharing tips, sharing leads uh, throughout the year. And, you know, this is almost a new category of relationship, somewhere between friend and acquaintance, where you actually know about them and you share interests. But you can maintain these connections in the absence of the time and energy to actually pursue friendships with them. And, you know, I think there are negative sides to social media and academic life, which I hope I've done justice to in the book, and I've tried to be realistic about the negative aspects as well as the positive ones. But it's academic literature that makes me most hopeful about the possibility of what I call a new collegiality. The fact that the time investment involved in Twitter is so minimal that you, you kind of see this pro-social behavior thriving in which people help each other, people are nice to each other. Because no matter how much time and energy you spend agonizing over 140 characters, it's still 140 characters at the end of the day. And, you know, this lack of temporal commitment, I think short circuits the accounting for our time that we often do, which I've written about elsewhere as triaging, where, you know, there's constantly so many urgent things we have to do that, you know, we can't, it's more difficult to spend time engaging with other people and helping them. And I think Twitter can often short-circuit that and uh, in a really positive way.
you the side to um to to that um engagement you've just outlined there is not for academics but is for the public and just as you've you know kind of highlighted a range of sociological reflections on the use of something like twitter i think you do the same by kind of problematizing the idea of the public um in chapter 4 so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about the use of social uh, media for public uh, and and also media engagement uh, but also to highlight that idea about the discussion of different forms of public and different types of engagement. Well, when you think in practical terms about using social media for public engagement, what might in another sphere seem like a theoretical point about what is the public becomes something actually quite substantive because the more time you spend using social media, the more obvious it becomes. There is no general public. There are particular publics, and the way in which people engage with those publics in turn changes what they are when we consider the consolidation of new publics. Uh, And I I think it was easy to think of a general public uh, for public engagement when we were reliant on broadcasting. So there's this influential model of the public intellectual that still, in my view, unfortunately persists, of the generalist talking on a whole range of topics talking to mass audiences through the mass media, be that broadcast or print media. And what excites me about social media is the possibility of what Marshall Poe talks about as a, as a sort of narrow casting. The fact that it's not a case of talking in the most general terms to the most general public, something that, you know, at the very most would only be accessible to a few by definition, but rather the people working on what might seem to be incredibly niche topics, can nonetheless find the public because there are people out there who have an interest for them, have a passion for these topics. And these tools allow a public to consolidate around that topic. And, you know, as well as that, I think it offers uh, for particular groups immensely powerful uh, tools to connect with them and engage with them and build relationships with them. One of the most interesting experiences in my own research has been the asexual community which is a large and diverse group of people that have consolidated predominantly online, although there are offline meetings all over the world in both an organised and, inform- and informal capacity. And from the outset, uh, there's been communication between researchers on asexuality and the asexual community. And, you know, sometimes this upsets the traditional expectation of how academics see their work. So you'll often find people from the asexual community discussing the work of asexuality researchers, uh, sometimes sometimes critically, other times positively. But it really changes the dynamic because, you know, you can overplay the ivory tower uh, idea. But nonetheless, you know, I think there is an expectation that participants and research are out there in the world. We're in here in the campus. And I think social media offers real opportunities to build ongoing, sustained relationships, engaged relationships with communities we do research with and research about. And another exciting issue is uh, the relationship between the media, because I think a lot of the changes that are underway for within higher education as a result of social media are, are also something we can see in journalism. And I think the interface between journalism and academia is changing. And social media is a really important site for this change. And so the more you engage on social media, you know, you leave a digital footprint 
that digital footprint makes it easy for journalists to find you. And the ease of communication makes it easy to actually engage and work together with journalists. There are certainly downsides to this. Um, you know, one often reported experience is journalists in a panic before a deadline trying to find an academic to give them a relevant quote. But, you know, there are downsides to everything. Um, and, you know, in a way, I think it's important that we get beyond focusing on positives versus negatives and instead try and get a broader panoramic picture of how this field is changing. And so I've tried to offer two examples here, and there's a few others that I talk about in the book, of how the relationship between academics as a group and other groups that we work with is being transformed by social media. So uh, working with journalists, working with groups we research with. And I think it's important to recognise these changes that are underway, because if we're reflexive about them, if we think about our practice and how it needs to change to thrive in this new environment, then there's great opportunities here to do new engaged work. But I also try and focus in the chapter that there are potential problems here. And I think those problems are much more likely if we don't take stock of these changes, if we don't think about how to adapt to them, then some negative consequences can flow from that. There are other types of practice um, that I guess go beyond the kind of um, publicising or uh, narrow casting or, or networking, which is to do with research itself. Um, so some of this is to do with information management. Um, some of it is bringing in social media practice into the research process. Um, and, you, you know, you talk about social media as a way of curating and, and, and organising research. Uh, you know, this is something that I've talked about in the past, is using social media as a research notebook or as a public notebook. And academics always use notebooks. And it's something that I find very interesting, the fact that, the, the, you know, the day-to-day tools of what Les Back, for instance, talks about as the craft of scholarship tend not to be something we discuss, or they tend to be something we discuss in private. The way we record ideas, the way we file away leads, the way we re- reflect on new material we come across. And particularly in a digitalised environment, academics manage a lot of information. They have to sort that information. They have to filter it to determine its relevance, to see how particular items of information feed into broader projects. And this is something that I find social media enormously useful for. And, you know, there is a developing discourse, I think, where social media is seen by some as being just one more thing to do. It's an additional task to add on to a very long to-do list. And yet, when you look at it in terms of managing for information, determining its salience, understanding how it filters into projects, you begin to see that social media is not just an additional task, but it's a, a new way of doing existing tasks, one which I, I think can actually save people time and make them more effective. And some of the interviews I did in the book I thought were quite revealing uh, for this. So although I've advocated <clears throat> using a blog and a Twitter feed as a way of managing information, so when you find new material, you archive a link to it, categorize that link, add a comment so you can understand its relevance later. This is a way of doing archiving in public, as it were. But you can also do this using digital tools in a way that's less public, for instance, using something like Evernote. And I think academics have always kept files. One of my favourite authors, C. Wright Mills, at the end of The Sociological Imagination, talks about the mechanics, the day-to-day logistics of keeping a file and how this contributes to what he calls keeping your inner world uh, awake. 
And this is something that I think can now be done using digital tools in a way that is straightforwardly more efficient. Because if you have a if you have a smartphone and a tablet, these tools can synchronize between locations. You can enter material whenever you find it. And it's infinitely retrievable. And you know, it's a way of people keeping a, a record of what they've been reading, what they thought of what they're reading identifying the connections that emerge between things we're reading, things we're engaging with, things we're writing, to do snippets of writing and see how they fit into wider projects. And this is something that I think can really intensify the process of scholarship without necessarily adding to the time demands. And I think in some cases can actually make it a quicker, more effective process because it's more engaged, it's more situational. And, you know, it's, it's, it's more integrated into daily life almost. The latter third of the book um, deals almost kind of precisely with um, the questions of, you know, that feeling of having, you know, one more task to do and how to integrate these practices into daily life. Um, and I think you, do, you deal with this really interestingly in, in two ways across um, chapters six, seven and eight, whereby you've got a discussion of um, almost kind of, you know, professional identity, um, the kind of challenging, enabling um, or, or making of, of academic identities, and then with some practical recommendations about things like finding the time and communication strategies. And I wonder if we, we could take those two things in turn. So what, what do you think, and you've alluded to this already, but what do you think is that kind of key impact um, social media on acad academic identity? And what might be some practical recommendations? You know, the foremost problem I think that academics face in terms of social media and how it impacts on professional identity is that we work with different audiences and when these interactions are constrained within particular contexts, so a seminar room, a, you know, a conference we attend, uh, a departmental meeting, it's a lot easier to manage these different aspects of our identities, these different fragments of self we present. And social media tends to merge them all together. You know, these boundaries collapse. And I think that poses a huge number of practical problems. And so in the book, I talk about this in terms of relationships to, uh, to colleagues, to managers, both, you know, academic managers and within the institutional hierarchy, uh, to students, to friends and family. And so I try and reflect in the book about the particular kinds of identity dilemmas each of these groups poses, how we present ourselves online, and then to consider about how we negotiate these, uh, the relationships between these groups. And it's something that's, uh, you know, a little hard to do in the abstract, because exactly what these identity dilemmas are does depend on the identity of the person in question and the relationship to these particular groups. But, you know, I think there are some general uh, points that can be taken from this. But, you know, the key, the key one is the necessity of being reflexive, you know, much as the relationship between academics and journalists are, are, are changing, this interface between universities and the media, this is a more micro-social example of that, in which there's a, there's a significant change in the field of communications. And, you know, there are guidelines that we can offer about how people should manage this. But the key thing is to sensitise ourselves to the nature of this change so that we can take action and adapt to it. And it's not something that is necessarily particularly challenging but it's something that if we do not think about it, then negative consequences can begin to uh, accumulate. And so, yeah, what would you say are 
um, a couple of practical recommendations then in terms of, um, I guess, communication strategy and then also um, finding the time? Uh, in terms of communication strategy, I think part of it is about trying to, uh, you know, and I feel uh, about the term narrative and the way I'm about to use it, not unlike how I feel about networking, you know, to, to, to develop a narrative for yourself, to develop a way of explaining who you are, where you're coming from, what you're, what you're doing. And this can feel a little bit contrived, but I think it's really helpful because the circumstances in which it's necessary to offer that are, are multiplying. And, you know, it's a slightly mundane aspect of using social media, but I, I tried to discuss in the book the importance of crafting a social media profile uh, you know, these little sections in which, in a very short amount of text, you, you know, you're conveying a sense of who you are, what you're doing. And I think this is a really important part of academic identity on online, because this is how people will see you online. This is how people will most likely assess you if they don't know who you are in advance. And, to, you know, think about how you can concisely summarize what you're working on. And I think why it matters to you as well is a really important skill to communicate effectively. Because, you know, as Pat Thompson has put it, if you, you know, if you don't tell a story about yourself online, other people will tell a story about you. And that can be an unfortunate reality, but I think it's also an interesting challenge to offer a sense of yourself as, a, as an academic and about how you want people to receive your work. And this is something that will contextualise the other things you do online. So it's quite a powerful opportunity to frame how other people will perceive your online activity in a way that can mitigate some of these other risks that we've talked about. Uh, in terms of finding the time, uh, the, the, you know, the key thing I'd emphasize most of all is to look at how, rather than being something additional or supplementary to your work, social media can be a way of doing your work in a way that might be time neutral or can even, even save you time. But on a more practical level, um, you know, one key aspect is the possibility of automation. So there are tools like If This Then That, which is still in its infancy, I guess, but it's a very powerful system for thinking about how different social media channels can be linked together. So you can automate processes of publishing between different, cha between different channels you're using or archiving material you find interesting. So if you favorite something on Twitter, if this, then that can be used to move it straight to your Dropbox so you can read it when you're traveling, say. And, you know, I think this creates an interesting uh, impulse to think about the flow of your work and to think about the different activities you're engaged in, how they're linked together, and, you know, how you can actually do small tweaks which make that process more efficient. Uh, and so this is something, you know, that I have a geeky preoccupation with. But I think it's a kind of activity that it can feel perhaps, like it's a form of procrastination. And if I'm honest, it can be a form of procrastination if you take it too far, which I do all the time. But, you know, to, to think strategically about this, to think about when you want to read material, where and when you come across things you want to read, and then about how to link this up so that you have what you want to work on when you're in a position where you want to work on it. And so, for instance, as someone who spends an awful lot of my life on trains, it's been really key to have a system so that even if I've got no reliable Wi-Fi access, I can nonetheless do work on trains. And so, you know, it's just thinking about these different contexts you work in, the activities you're engaging with them, the devices you have available to them in those different contexts, 
and then to you know manage the flow of work across those different aspects of your life. The book ends with, um, I think, that continued integration of um, practical um, reflections, but also some really interesting theoretical engagements. And there are kind of several ideas that I could have picked out um, from the the way the book ends. But I think two um, that might be most interesting to kind of draw to a conclusion on might be um, the way you use the idea of a marketplace of ideas and then um, the kind of continued concern with with the idea of openness, which obviously in, in the UK at the moment um, is really big in terms of um, things like open access and stuff um, like that. So I wonder if you could say a little bit um, in conclusion about um, this idea about the marketplace of ideas, which is a useful frame, I think, for the final chapter, and then um, debates and practices associated with openness. Well, it's funny, this is the third phrase in the book that I feel is compulsive need to apologise for, because I don't like the term the marketplace of ideas. But I think it's a useful concept to think about the environment within which ideas circulate and about how certain kinds of ideas uh, thrive in certain kinds of environments. And so in this final chapter, I try and situate social media in terms of the, the broader status of the social sciences and humanities within contemporary society. And particularly, you know, the challenges to autonomous social scientific knowledge that have been thrown up over the last few decades. Uh, because I think the status of academics within society is changing. I think the influence of ac- academic ideas is arguably waning. And, you know, it's, it's in terms of this that I see something very powerful about social media. And, you know, I touched on this as well in the chapter on public engagement, but, I, you know, I really try and explore it in a bit more theoretical depth in this final chapter. Because I think there are renewed possibilities for academics to engage in public life and perhaps have a degree of influence, which is said to been lacking, and a generalisation of a model of intellectualism that was dominant, I don't think is any longer sustainable. But, you know, I think could be generalised through a community of engaged scholars using social media to actually propagate their ideas in a public setting. And this isn't just putting ideas out there. And I think it's something we need to get away from, the idea that publishing is simply a matter of making something public and then expecting that people will respond to it. You know, I think we need to think about the contemporary marketplace of ideas and to develop strategies for engaging fruitfully within it, which are, of course, dependent on what we're working on, what we want to achieve, the groups we want to engage with. But, you know, to go back to Dana Boyd's description of it, it's the affordances of social media. It's the things social media lets us do that offer such profound opportunities here, albeit with the risks that we've talked about. And so, yeah, I think there's a there's a reason here to reconsider the place of academics within the contemporary marketplace of ideas and the challenges we face and how we can use these tools to actually thrive um, within this contemporary setting. And, you know, kind of a, a parallel issue that you, you mentioned here is the relationship with openness. Uh, I think there are good reasons to be cautious about the rhetoric of openness. Not least of all, because I think it too often goes hand in hand with this idea that if we just make something open, if we make it accessible, then we put it to work. Uh, I, I talk about this in the book in terms of the amelioration fallacy. This idea that to solve social problems, all we have to do is increase the circulation of expert knowledge. The idea that we have all the answers. 
And the only reason those answers are not being acted upon is because there are journal paywalls or because the right people aren't reading this work. And I think that's really problematic. You know, I think it's a misunderstanding of social problems. It's a misunderstanding of how expert knowledge is applied. And, you know, it could be a way of making ourselves feel feel better, you know, placing the burden elsewhere, seeing obstacles to the activation of what we see as the latent potential of our work. And I think social media gives re- re- reason to think in a renewed way about how we put ideas to work, how we, not just a case of getting them out there, but actually doing things with them, working with people in a way influenced by our ideas. And that these are some, this is something for which social media is uniquely powerful. And I'm really excited about the opportunities uh, that it offers. As, but, you know, there are nonetheless these uh, really significant risks. And all throughout the book, you know, I talk about reflexivity. I talk about the need to be aware of yourself in relation to these changing contexts. Be aware of what changes are taking place. But then to learn to think through about how you should orientate yourself towards these changes. And as I said at the start, it's a, I, I thought it was a slightly strange book in some ways because I go from, on the one hand, the very minute, mundane detail of some of the practical problems about using social media. So, you know, how to write a profile, how to think about what to tweet. And then at the other end of the spectrum, I'm talking about slightly lofty-sounding ideas, uh, you know, about engaged scholarship and the marketplace of ideas. But these two things are intimately linked to me. It's through getting these mundane day-to-day technical aspects right that we can start to actually work towards these loftier goals. You know, I talk a lot about tools in the book, and that's a, a you know, term I'm uncomfortable with in some ways. But I think to link these two frames of reference together, it is quite useful to think in terms of tools, about learning to use these tools effectively in order to explore the uses to which we can put them. Uh, in a much broader setting. Is that something you're going to be uh, developing with further work then? Or um, have you kind of, you know, having written this book, are you moving on to to other things? Obviously, you do a lot of uh, social media related work for various sociological journals and uh, websites and this kind of stuff. But are are you going to be kind of carrying on with, um, I guess, reflecting on and and analysing social media? or, Or are you developing work in different directions? Uh, well, this, this book led quite organically to my next book project uh, because, you know, there are many downsides and potential risks in academic social media. But the one I've got most interested in is distraction. And so particularly this chapter about managing information when I was starting to try and think theoretically about what it is to manage information, what it is to organise material you encounter and to put it to use. Uh, and so I've started work on a book about digital distraction uh, but ironically, it's been six months and I've been getting distracted, so <laughs> not made much progress. Uh, but I'm hopefully going to have more time to work on that over the next year. And I- I'm very interested about the... I think information overload is a problematic concept. But nonetheless, I think it captures a lived reality. And part of my enthusiasm for the kind of curatorial use of social media tools is it as a way of managing this overload? So the book is an attempt to reconceptualize what overload is, to think about how people can respond to it, but also to look sociologically at the potential problems if people don't respond to this overload. So I, I'm exploring this in terms of 
say, social movements. And I've developed this notion of the fragile movement, the kind of social movement, the characteristics of a social movement that emerge when people have this distracted relationship to the world and about the kinds of strategies people engage in to deal with this distraction, but how they in turn may have unintended consequences for how we engage in social life and political life. Great. I look forward to, uh, to reading that. Brilliant. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Dr. Mark Carrigan about social media for academics, which was published by Sage in 2016.